0: this morning to Acts chapter 17. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Acts together and we come to chapter 17 today. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention. They'll put one in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage we're studying today. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 17 And we'll pick things up in verse 16, the word of the Lord. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. When he saw the city was given over to idols, therefore, important word, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers. And in the marketplace, daily, with those who happened to be there. And then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? And others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because Paul preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange thing to our ears, and therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, "'To the unknown God, and therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him,' I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all.'" And breath and all things, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their preappointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have your being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his. His offspring. And therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like silver or gold or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, those times, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this. Uh, of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection from, of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from among them. However, some people joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the area got by, uh, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much as we always do when your book is open before us. Where would we be, Lord, if this book was not a part of human history and a part of our lives? We thank you that it is. We thank you for the additional privilege of never having to turn to it independent of you, the teacher, And your desire to open it up to us and to teach us what we need to know, even things that we don't think that we need to know, but you know that we do. And, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to teach us from your Word this morning. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your commitment to us. Lord, I pray specifically for any that are standing before you right now, And uh, the silence from you in their life, because of what you're working in their life, what your the faith that you are developing within them. But the silence is discouraging uh, to them. Some even begin to doubt your love and your presence, Lord. I pray that you would just speak to them right now, just through my lips, of the greatness of your love for them, your commitment to the work that you're doing in them and that it is a very, very good work, Lord. Thank you for being the heavenly Father that you are. Thank you for being one that we can trust in and never be disappointed. Thank you, Lord, for being strong enough and big enough to be able to weigh you down with the fullness of our problems and of our needs, Lord. And we bless you and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul um, is on his what missionary journey? His second. Thank you very much. (laughs) I've repeated it so many times, I get a little self-conscious related to it. But he is on his second missionary journey, and he's just left the city Uh, of Berea under the threat once again of his uh, physical safety. And he leaves Silas and Timothy who are accompanying him on this journey in Berea to continue to strengthen the church there while uh, new brothers, new Christians there in Berea escort Paul uh, to his safety from Berea uh, involving a sea journey to the city of Athens upon depositing them him there safely in Athens Paul then tells them once you make the journey back to Berea see Silas and Timothy again tell them now to come Uh, straightly or directly uh, to me. And so at this point in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is all alone in the city of Athens. By the time Paul came to Athens, the city was now fully 500 years beyond uh, its prime, beyond what is uh, called the Golden Age of Athens, the era of 300 to 500 uh, B.C., Corinth has replaced it as the uh, commercial and the political center of of, uh, uh, Greece there, but it remained very much the cultural and the intellectual and the philosophical center, not only of Greece, but of the entire Roman Empire. Uh, And for no other reason than, after all, the fact that only Athens within the Roman Empire could boast of having been the native city of both Socrates and Plato, and then of having ultimately become the adopted home of Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno. And so this is quite a pedigree related to philosophy and philosophers. And it, is, it was at the time that Paul visited a very significant university city. In fact, it was the university city in that part of the world. And as a part of being a university city, a very uh, prestigious university city, it it was complete with all of the pride and the arrogance that can sometimes uh, accompany that kind of a designation. We're told in verse 16 that the city was given over to idols. It's a very nice King James way of saying it was jammed uh, with idols. There were altars everywhere, statues everywhere. Temples uh, everywhere. Uh, One visitor of uh, Greece in those days uh, declared it to be a uh, literal forest of uh, idols within the city. They were everywhere, on every street corner. Idols to Zeus in Athena, Athens named after Athena, Aphrodite, Ares, Hermes, and so forth. And the Greek, uh, important to understand that the Greek religion was essentially the deification of human attributes uh, and of uh, nature, the powers of nature. So if a Greek wanted to get drunk, he simply called it the worship of Dionysius. Uh, if he wanted to indulge his sexual lust, then he did so completely guilt-free, calling it the worship of Aphrodite. If he was inclined to steal, then Hermes uh, helped him in this lifestyle. If he was ill-tempered, very savage, very brutal uh, human being, he, he was, after all, only being like Zeus. And so it went. And because so many of the Greek... Uh, uh, the gods had no morals. They didn't demand a strict morality of those who followed it. At its essence, the Greek worship of the Greek gods was simply the worship of self, the worship of ourselves, the lust of our flesh, the worship of nature. And it is a very, very contemporary condition, not only Uh, in the United States of America that we live in now, but also in the world. Nothing new under the sun. But today, of course, in the United States, we're too sophisticated to be putting idols of some kind upon uh, our entryways to our homes, for the most part we are, or to put them uh, on the mantle, uh, we just have a 60-inch screen uh, that brings us idols. I'm just kidding, all right, I'm just poking a little bit, but, but we, we consider ourselves to be above all this kind of things and too sophisticated to be uh, worshiping gods in the way that the ancient uh, uh, Greeks did, but all we've really done is now we don't I- bother anymore to try and disguise our worship of self or worship of the creation by introducing some kind of uh, physical idol. We are by and large in the same condition uh, that they ever were. Now, to give you an idea of the sheer density of idols in Athens, One wit in the ancient world declared that it was easier to find a God in Athens than to find a man, and he wasn't very far uh, from the truth. Now, Paul's reaction to all of this is described to us in verse 16. His spirit was provoked within him. Paul is a Jew Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's coming into idolatry central. It isn't that this is the first time he's been exposed to this kind of thing or... Uh, this side of the Roman Empire he was raised in as Saul of Tarsus in a Roman city, so you know he he had already gotten his bearings related to you know how all the, the standing all of these things had within uh, the Roman Empire. But when he walks into Athens and he sees the sheer density how of idolatries and uh, and and the level of worship given to them. Uh, Even he is impacted by it. And again, as we're told in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him. So he didn't think to himself upon getting to Athens, oh, this is very cool. I've always wanted to see Athens, and so I think I'll take some uh, selfies of me up at the Acropolis and the Parthenon, and I'll post them on my Facebook page or on Instagram so everybody can know what I'm up to. When Paul went into that city and he saw the idolatry, his spirit was provoked, and the word provoked means to sharpen. As he looked at the idolatry that was all around him, it produced a reaction within him. He wasn't indifferent to it, And so when he observed what people were worshiping there in Athens, and then he tested it within his mind uh, and compared it to the God that he worshiped, when he looked at what the the debased lives that the worshiping of these Athenian gods produced in comparison to the kind of life uh, that God, the God of the Bible, uh, produces, all it did in him is it provoked within him the desire to make the gospel known in Athens. Sometimes as Christians I think we can grow indifferent to idolatry in our culture and it no longer provokes us. It no longer uh, impacts us in any way anymore. Or that we are provoked by you know, the depravity of the culture or the idolatry of the culture, but we never take the next step that Paul does in addressing the problem and so this kind of person who sees everything is provoked by it but then doesn't become a part of the solution. They spend all of their time just privately ranting and raving over the condition of the world and, and uh, until finally anytime anybody's invited over at the house, the wife says, listen, don't bring up this subject or this subject or this subject or you're going to set him off. And we want to have a nice night tonight and if you go close to these subjects, don't bring them up and, and because this is what he does. And we become you know mere ranters and ravers over the condition of the world and we never become a part of the solution. Paul decided to address it in a different kind of way. And you notice his response is recorded for us in verse 17. His response was that on the Saturdays, the Sabbaths, He would go, as he typically would do in visiting a city, into the Jewish synagogue, and he would then teach from the Scriptures how it is that Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah to the Jews who were there, and then also to the Gentiles who were God-fears. And then the rest of the week, apparently, he went out into the Agora, out into the uh, marketplace of Athens, and the Agora was the a commercial center of the city. And so he would begin to speak to people about the gospel, about God's offer of salvation to them in Jesus Christ. And he would do it in the form of personal conversations with people. He might have even engaged in a little bit of a street corner uh, preaching, And then while he's doing this now for some period of time, he gains the attention and the curiosity of the Athenians there in verses 18 through 21. And he's immediately approached by certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And uh, they encounter him, they're listening to what it is that he is saying, and they come and they begin a conversation with him. Now, uh, the Epicurean philosophy and the, and the Stoic uh, philosophy, two major philosophies that were represented in Athens at the time. Uh, the Epicureans believed, and they were very, very much materialists in their outlook. They were uh, virtual uh, atheists. And for them, uh, there was no real God. And if there was a God that existed, he existed so far away. Uh, from the human condition uh, that uh, he exercised virtually no influence upon it. And so the Epicurean philosophy, as it's spoken about today, is, in, is popular in, uh, popularly encapsulated as eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die. They were uh, kind of became known as the hedonists, and if it feels good, do it, that kind of thing. Now, Epicurus, when he began his philosophy, that uh, hedonism and debauchery was not what he had in mind at all. That's not uh, what uh, Epicurean wanted. What he looked at and said, "Listen, we're in this world. We're on we're on our own here. The gods aren't intervening, if they exist at all. And so, the best thing that you can do in life is kind of lay low, navigate." The nuttiness of this world and the pain of this world and the goal in life is to put yourself in a place where you experience as little pain and as few problems as you can. And it was just one man trying to figure out, independent of the true and the living God, what's the best way to get through um, your three score and ten on the earth. By the time Paul comes to Athens, that purity, so to speak, of, of the Epicurean philosophy has been ruined, and it has at this point in time become an excuse for a wild living on the part of many. The Stoics, on the other hand, they, they were pantheists that believed that everything was God. And they believed that wisdom lay uh, in being free from intense emotions. So they uh, steeled themselves against even good emotions like joy, but also steeled themselves against emotions like uh, grief. The most important thing in life was your reason, and so they stressed individual self-sufficiency and personal discipline and it, uh, it, produ- it attracted strong people, naturally disciplined people. It attracted kind of the self-made kind of, uh, of man. They had a strong sense of, of duty. And so the problem with uh, Stoicism is that it offered no hope. And uh, the problem with Stoicism, and it ran into it early on, is that you cannot encourage thinking, and Stoicism did encourage thinking, but you cannot encourage thinking people to think without then giving them some truth and hope of some kind because this kind of person will will think, and they will think, and they will think, and they will think, and they will think. But without truth and without hope, they will ultimately become fatalists. And it's interesting, I think, to know that the first two leaders of the Stoic school uh, uh, committed suicide. And so these were two of the main ways that people sought to understand the meaning of life what's the best way to navigate life and it's important to know a little bit about uh, about them because paul's sermon a little bit later is going to speak to the deficiencies of each of those uh, philosophies now the reaction uh, to his uh, street preaching and his witnessing uh, to people is given to us in verse 18 uh, some people deemed him a babbler. Well, a uh, babbler is to put it uh, kindly. Uh, in the original language, it means that he was a seed picker. Now, I don't know the last time you've been called a seed picker. Probably you'd look at it and go, I don't have the slightest idea what that means, but I think this person has just insulted me. So, a seed picker, Uh, produced a particular image in people's mind and that was of a bird kind of being in a barnyard and pecking indiscriminately at the seeds in the barnyard and it was a term that was used for someone who kind of went through life uh, picking up secondhand pieces of uh, information and teaching and learning along the way. Uh, they didn't never had kind of an original thought uh, in their life or an original idea themselves, but they took all of these things that they were exposed to. And then sometime in the course of their life, they bound them up together and then produced a new philosophy on life. And so some of them deemed him to be this kind of a person. Others... Uh, declared Paul taught about foreign or new gods in preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And it isn't unlikely that they so completely misunderstood what he was saying uh, that he was, they thought he was preaching Jesus, and then a second god named uh, resurrection. But at any rate, they come to him, verses 19 to 21, and they took Paul to the Are- Are- Areopagus and uh, commonly known today as Mars Hill, where uh, it was reputed that uh, the god Mars was tried uh, for killing Neptune, and so it became known as the place for that, and and called Mars Hills as a result. Now Mars Hill was both a hill and it was also a court, and the council of Areopagus was made up of, as Paul is brought before them, the most learned men in the city, the most learned philosophers in Athens. And these men were responsible to watch over Uh, the religions and the education of the city. And so they had a responsibility to be aware of what was being taught within their city, and so it was natural for them now to investigate this new doctrine that Paul had brought into uh, Athens. And if Paul's doctrine met their approval, then Paul would be free to teach it in Athens. So at their invitation, Paul was given the undivided attention, we're told, of the most learned philosophers in Athens at the time. This is known in Christianese as an open door, and it's an open door that you can drive a white freightliner through. And so they invite him now... Uh, As they're all looking up at him, and there he is, he's in the Areopagus, he's standing on Mars Hill. Uh, Above him to the west is uh, the Acropolis in all of its glory, not a ruin yet, that is above him. He sits as he stands on Mars Hill. The Agora is down below him. All of these philosophers are uh, in front of him. He is in uh, secularism, idolatry, central. And he is the only representative of Jesus in the entire city. I mean, you get a feel for it. And when you, when you stop in the progression of what's going on here and you just look at that scene, not knowing what happens uh, after it, you just look at Paul and say, what in the world is he going to say to them? How in the world is he going to get through to this group of people on their ground and very much on on their ground. So how do you preach? The question gets raised. How do you preach the gospel? To a wholly, completely pagan and idolatrous culture or to a wholly pagan and idolatrous person. Now, when Paul preached to the Jews and Gentile God-fears in the synagogues, he always did the same thing. He reasoned with them from the Old Testament Scriptures, showing them how it was that Jesus was and is the promised uh, Jewish Messiah. And he reasoned with them from the Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament, because in a synagogue, the Scriptures were authoritative. They were the highest authority for truth and spirituality within that particular uh, environment. So Paul could go in there, he could declare something to be true, and then he could provide a proof text for what he was declaring to be true from the book of Genesis or from the book of Isaiah, and then having done so, the issue was completely settled in the setting of that synagogue. But with Paul's audience here in Athens, he couldn't refer them to Genesis or refer them to Isaiah in proving a point in the same way. The Old Testament Scriptures meant absolutely nothing to them, wouldn't have made a a dent in in their thinking, uh, and so where do you start? And as Christians, I think that increasingly we face the very same dilemma in sharing the gospel with our uh, post-Christian culture in the United States and with the people that it's producing, our uh, co-workers, our fellow students, our neighbors, our, our families. I mean, most of us remember who are a little bit older that there was a day in the United States when you could declare something to be true, uh, quote a Bible verse supporting that truth, and the issue was settled. Uh, It was the standard for morality and for truth within the culture by and large. And so the Bible was considered authoritative in that culture concerning, again, spirituality and morality, but those days are long gone. And so what it tells us now, since God has called us to be His witnesses in a world that He knew was coming... And in the United States that he knew was one day going to develop. So we need to learn how to share the gospel with people like never before, how to share the gospel with people who have zero background in the Bible and who give it no more weight than any other religion in the world or any other philosophy of life. And for that reason, Paul's sermon to the Athenians is invaluable in helping us understand how in the world to do that. Now, perhaps you've noticed as we uh, have gone through the book of Acts uh, that Dr. Luke does not record for us Paul's sermon every time he went into a synagogue. He recorded one of Paul's sermons in Acts chapter 13 when Paul went into the synagogue and he preached the gospel there in Antioch of Pisidia. And then Dr. Luke doesn't continue to record those sermons because he's operating under the assumption that we will then realize that that is basically the sermon that Paul was then preaching in every other synagogue that Luke mentions that Paul Uh, went to and and that he was preaching the, the same thing everywhere that he visited. When Luke then, when he gives us the full sermon of Paul once again in Acts chapter 17, it's because Paul has changed his approach in preaching the gospel here because this is a totally new environment he's preaching in and Luke records it in order that we might learn something from it and uh, and uh, and how to uh, then uh, teach and, and preach the word of God in a similar environment when we find ourselves In that place. And in looking at this Athenian address, it's important to realize that Paul is addressing people who are deeply, deeply steeped in philosophy. They are students of philosophy. You're talking about an audience of a group of people that it would be like talking to, to an entire uh, room full of people in a university setting who are uh, getting their masters in philosophy. So these people are very, very deeply steeped in philosophy, students of philosophy. The Stoics were Stoics not because It was the only philosophy they had ever been exposed to in their life. They weren't Stoics because Stoicism was the only thing that was offered to them. They became Stoics because they looked at that philosophy in the light of all other philosophies and deemed it to be superior to the Epicurean philosophy and so became Stoics. And the Epicureans became Epicurean uh, followed that philosophy because they studied the Stoics. Uh, stoic philosophy and deemed Epicureanism to be superior to that. They weren't mindless people. They followed what they followed for a reason with a very, very broad exposure uh, to uh, philosophy. And so here we have a beautiful model for how to share Jesus with a group of people who have zero biblical background. Now, as we look at this, uh, and and I think it's important for you to realize, and, and, and I want to make it clear here, is that no one will typically share everything that Paul shares in this sermon with every person that we run into that doesn't know anything about the Bible because we are very rarely going to talk to people and share with people, uh, people who are this steeped in, actually educated in uh, philosophy or are philosophy majors. But what the sermon does for us, and this is important, it provides us with some very, very sound principles for how to relate the gospel to even those who are the most steeped in paganism or in man-made philosophy or in humanism. And if it is something that can have an impact upon them, then it can certainly will have an impact upon everyone else that we uh, talk to. Now, before uh, any of you uh, tune me out completely at this point, uh, I think that because our culture is post-Christian... Most of us now as Christians, we cannot be the Christians we were 10 years ago. We certainly cannot be the Christians that we were uh, 20 years ago. The harvest field that God has placed us in the middle of called the United States of America has dramatically changed. And what it requires of each of us as Christians is that we need to learn In a way that we never have before, we need to learn how to share our faith with precisely the person that Paul is talking to here. And each of us are going to require learning a little something about a biblical uh, 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 apologetic for talking to this kind of person. And, and as Peter wrote in his uh, first epistle, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is it within you. Now, because of uh, its importance, we're going to spend two weeks Sunday mornings examining the passage. Next week we'll look at the body of the sermon, what Paul actually declares to them about God and why what he declared to them about God was so important to them and so important to uh, us. With the remainder of our time this morning, I would like us just to notice the introduction uh, to the sermon and uh, not only to its content but to notice as Paul uh, stands before this group of people how he conducts himself and how he said what he said. And and we learn some tremendous um, insights in in terms of witnessing etiquette as Christians, sharing the gospel with other people. And it is important to notice before we ever see what Paul taught them Uh, to notice his heart attitude toward his listeners and that he establishes this with them before he ever begins to uh, uh, preach the sermon uh, to them. It has an awful lot to say to us because if Paul didn't get this right, if he didn't have a proper attitude toward these people that he was going to share the gospel with, then he would have never been able to get to the body of the message that he was going to declare to them about God. And the same thing is true of every one of our witnessing experiences with other people. If we don't get these things right, if we do not minister to people with a right heart and sharing the gospel, they will never stick around long enough uh, for us to tell them uh, the gospel. Now, notice uh, Paul here, and we'll uh, look briefly at, at five things to observe here. I know that sinks some of your hearts as you look at your watch, but we'll move through them Uh, quickly. First of all, we learn from Paul this opportunity to share with the Athenians that it began with Paul's heart for people. It began with a concern for people, verse 16, his love for people. When he looked at the city and he saw the entire city given over to idols, his spirit was provoked within him. And without this provocation of his spirit, he would have never cared to even go out and begin to share in the marketplace, to ever get noticed by the Epicureans and the Stoics, and to ever land on Mars Hill. It was because he had a concern for the souls of the people of Athens in the light of what they were worshiping uh, that. Uh, He ended up getting noticed by them, and a sermon ends up being preached at all. If Paul didn't love people, if he did not have a deep concern for the spiritual welfare and eternities uh, of people that they might know the truth of God, hear the gospel, then trust in Jesus, and so forth, to be set free by the gospel in the same way that He had been set free uh, from the gospel, though He was set free on a religious spectrum at the complete opposite end from them. But bondage is bondage. And He could have... If he didn't love these people, he would have just locked himself in his hotel room or just spent all of his time at the, the Starbucks that was in his neighborhood, sipping lattes and just waiting for the arrival of Silas and Timothy. But he didn't do that. But in this environment here, if we love ourselves, if we're into self preservation, uh, we will remain silent. Uh, uh, concerning even sharing the most important thing, the gospel, with even the people that are most important to us in life. But if we love people and we love God, we will have a burden for people's salvation. And, and all of this begins with his burden for souls, uh, to realization that heaven and hell is real. Uh, every person is going to spend eternity in one of those destinations, and that God has good news of salvation that is found in His Son. And that's the message that God wants uh, everyone to hear. This is something that consumed the Apostle Paul and needs to consume us as Christians as well. i never forget hearing uh, evangelist Danny Lehman. He was uh, teaching... In fact, from this very pulpit a number of years ago, and he was talking about his uh, the intensity of his desire uh, for souls, his burden for souls, and how uh, he would go with his family to Disneyland, and they would get on "It's a Small World," and they'd go all the way through the world on "It's a Small World," and he'd get off of the boat at the end of the ride trembling. They're all going to hell. We've got to save all of them. And, uh, and he's laughing about it. His wife would take him by the arm and uh, tell him to just relax and enjoy the family and being at Disneyland today. But I think all of us understand something about that. Being in an environment where we come in and yes, there's a lot to enjoy in this environment, but look at the enormous spiritual need that is before us. And it's important for that to be in our hearts. And what Danny Lehman had was in the heart of the Apostle Paul as well. He wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, For the love of Christ constrains us. It is the love of Christ that pushes me forward in, in all of this. And if that heart isn't in us, and we're indifferent to the souls of our fellow man, then there is the need then to pray to God that He would produce it within us. And He will produce it within us to pray, Lord, would you give me the heart that the Apostle Paul had for these people who were so foreign to him on every level, and would you give me that kind of a heart for the world around me? And the Lord will always answer that prayer. I think it's very easy. I experience it myself, very easy to become frustrated with the secular culture around us, and then to find ourselves with, uh, if that happens to you, with our uh, hero prophet of the Old Testament, Jonah, and then begin to artificially separate ourselves from God's call uh, upon uh, our lives, and then wishing and waiting for God's judgment upon the world. I'm saved, and now God wipe them, all the rest of these numbskulls, out and it isn't just an old testament phenomenon it's very much a new testament temptation as well we remember the apostles uh, James and John the sons of thunder when Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem one time and he wanted to find shelter within a particular village, they wouldn't allow him to stay within the city. This infuriated James and John. They came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, they're not going to accommodate us and allow you to stay here. Shall we call fire down from heaven? I mean, talk about people of extremes. It wasn't like, shall we cancel our reservations? Should we not recommend that anybody comes to this city? No, it's got to be either they let us in or they're all going to be destroyed. Uh, 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 There might be some middle ground here, gentlemen. And uh, Jesus, of course, his answer to them uh, was classic, and it was in the form of a rebuke. And he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are. You're completely out of touch with my heart, gentlemen. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they then went to another village. Tellingly, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now, allow me to cl- conclude this point by saying that the very best thing that we can ever do in order to uh, develop a heart of love or compassion for the population that is around us, whether it's uh, within the city that we live in or the nation that we live in, or uh, a heart of compassion for an individual is to pray for that nation, or to pray for that city, or to pray for that individual, and to pray specifically for their salvation, and then to pray specifically for the Holy Spirit to open up an opportunity to share the gospel with that person. And the reason that it's the most important thing that we can do is then because when the opportunity ultimately occurs, we will have already been long invested in that conversation long before uh, it uh, comes and, and it ever happens, and we will treat that, witness, that opportunity to share with them with a care that we would not uh, do otherwise. Remember. Many of us in this room were far worse than most of the people that frustrate us today. And that's the flat-out fact of the matter, and I need to be reminded of. I was way worse of a person in my own way before becoming a Christian than most of the people are who frustrate me in this life. And the Apostle Paul never forgot the person that he was before he became a Christian. And and now after becoming a Christian, he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom... I am chief." Now notice second, very briefly, that Paul in verse 17 then went to the people with the gospel. So he goes to the agora, he goes to the marketplace. It's the equivalent of our going uh, to the mall, or going to a coffee shop, or going to a restaurant, uh, or going to a bookstore, or uh, even the internet. He went to the people with the gospel. He didn't wait for them to come to him. Again all in line with Jesus' great commission. When Jesus spoke to the apostles and to us, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And then here it is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and so forth. But the great commission, it occurs with a going forth on the part of Christians. And that great commission is a commission to each and every one of us as Christians. And it is never more important for us to understand that as American Christians than now in our post-Christian America, because people just don't wander into churches the way that they used to when they had problems or when they had crises. There was an America in my lifetime that the first thing that they would have thought or somebody would have told them was, there's free help down at the church. There's people that will help you at church. People don't think that anymore. People don't hear that, by and large, anymore. And it it doesn't enter into their minds that churches are a, a resource for help and for answers and for support. And so if we wait around... For people to come to us, come to church, or even approach us related to their needs rather than going uh, to them, that's not going to be a match for the culture that's developed around uh, us. More than ever, we must bring the message to them. Now notice a third in verse 19 that Paul was invited uh, to speak to them. In other words, Paul shared the gospel with them, as we'll see next week. He shared the gospel with them at their invitation. Now, this doesn't mean that we should never share the gospel with someone without first obtaining uh, their permission. But what it does mean is this, that we will never share the gospel with someone against their will when they are not wanting that to occur in their life, we must never corner people and then force them or use our influence, whatever it might be, force them to listen to us share spiritual things when they don't want to yet. And God has given people a free will in this regard, and we are to honor that free will. I remember one time I was sharing the Lord uh, door to door uh, when we were down on 10th and F, and I was sharing uh, the gospel and witnessing to people and inviting people to church when we were down on the the corner of of 10th and F again, and I was uh, down by the DMV downtown there, and I approached one man as he's sitting there uh, on his porch, and I began to talk to him a little bit about uh, the Lord, and he said, I don't want to talk about that. And then he produced a revolver from under his shirt. I said, all right, he's got a free will, all right? He's not going to force him to listen. But when somebody says, stop, don't talk to me about that, I don't want to hear that right now. I honor that whether the person has a gun or doesn't have a gun. And I know from my own life, that God knows how to get through to each and every person, and so I don't need to force something on them that at that particular moment they don't want to hear or enter into as a discussion. Because if I do, it will probably do only more harm uh, than good. Notice fourth in verses 22 to 25 that Paul was very, very tactful and very respectful and polite in addressing this audience again, Paul speaking about love in First Corinthians thirteen declared that charity or love does not behave rudely. An awful lot of witnessing or the sharing of our faith that i 've witnessed and even that i 've done uh, it has, it, it can be rude. it can be very, very uh, rude. And when I see Paul in here, it's a a, a beautiful uh, example. I see how humble and Christ-like he is. Uh, There's no pride. He's not acting arrogant. He's not giving off the vibe of being spiritually uh, superior to all of these people that I'm about to talk to, even though he was spiritually superior to all of the people that he was about to talk to. And I think one of the challenges that we face as Christians is that we do possess the truth about God and about spiritual truth. We do not possess a truth about God and spiritual things. We we possess the truth about God and about spiritual uh, things. But the trick, the challenge is to know that and to operate from that knowledge, and we need to operate from that knowledge, and yet at the same time remain very humble and very patient with other people. And to do what Paul does here, to be kind to them, not to talk down to them, not to lecture them, not to refuse to uh, listen to them or shoot down their arguments one after the other when they're just pausing to take uh, a breath and continuing what it is that they want to say to us. And I think most of us have seen this or experienced it or even done it. If we make people feel stupid, or we lecture them, or we talk down to them. In other words, we know everything about God. We know everything about spirituality, and you know nothing uh, about it. We will utterly fail in reaching people. They simply will not listen uh, to us. And all they'll be thinking about is how in the world do I escape this person And can I put a beeper on them so that I can know that uh, when they are within a hundred yards of me so that I can run uh, as fast as I can in the other uh, direction? What we're after here in sharing the gospel with people is not to win an argument. And when witnessing turns into an argument, all you need to do is just, I need to do is just zip my lip apologize to the person that it has gotten to uh, this place with and to walk away from it because I've already marred uh, the situation and uh, the thing is lost. We're not seeking to win an argument. We are seeking the surrender of their will to God. And most people will not do that unless they know that we genuinely care about them at least enough to have a discussion with them and to give sober uh, uh, consideration to what it is that they are also saying to us. And unless we treat them with that kind of respect, unless they feel safe with us, safe to either say yes to us or no to what we are offering uh, to them on God's uh, uh, behalf, and that we are not another notch in, in our, our spiritual belt for salvation, and that the relationship that we have them does not hang in the balance based upon what they do with that gospel, but that the relation means something uh, to us. And if we don't do that then and, and show that genuine care, people, we're not going to get very far with people. There is a lot to the old saying that people don't uh, care how much we know until they know how much we care. It's uh, been used and perhaps overused, but it is still a very valuable truth. When I talk with people about the gospel and looking to open a door up, and Paul's looking to open a door up here and one is opened up to him, I ask a lot of questions. Uh, to me, it's a, the Lieutenant Columbo form of, of witnessing. I just kind of play dumb, and I am dumb, so it makes it really easy, and I just uh, ask a lot of questions of people. And then I listen to, what they, uh, you know, what do they have to say here? And then, uh, and, and then very often I'll respond and say, you know, I tried that as well. Uh, but here's the problem that ultimately arose for me when I believed that and when I went in that particular direction, and and that's what I ran into. Have you ever run into that? Can you talk to me about that a little bit? Or, you know, I used to believe that as well, but what I kept getting tripped on, uh, up on related to that w- was this. And I found in my search that the most satisf- I, I haven't found... Any answer as satisfying is what the Bible has to say about that, and here's what that is. And then to ask them, what do you think about that? How do you see that? And, and so it goes back and forth, back and forth. It's a conversation. It's not a lecture. And it takes time, and we can get very, very impatient, and we want everything to happen in 10 minutes or uh, in an hour, and it doesn't go that way. Humility goes a long way in these kind of conversations, and the Apostle Paul shows tremendous humility, tremendous tact and politeness to his uh, audience. And we are, as the old saying goes, and we're going to throw some old sayings around here this morning, we are just uh, beggars telling other beggars where it is that they can find uh, bread and the Apostle Paul stands before the people in that way. Fifth and finally, in verse twenty-two, uh, notice that Paul found something to commend these Athenians uh, uh, philosophers for. He affirms them in verse uh, twenty-two, and he affirms their zeal for religion. Now, the statement of Paul's when he talks about uh, their religion and affirms them in this way. It is not an endorsement of their religions. It's a commendation of their search for the meaning of life beyond the physical realm. He is commending them for being willing to grapple with the real philosophical questions of life, which they were doing. Questions like, why are we here? How did we get here? How does the world work? Why is the world the way that it is? Why do things happen the way that they happen? Is anybody in control of this world? What is the meaning and the purpose of life? And I think that when we read through Acts chapter 17... In our modern culture, it can be very easy, I think, for the average American to look at at these Athenians and uh, something of their culture and their philosophy and their idolatry and just dismiss them as superstitious and backward compared to our culture. But I would disagree with that. And as a pastor, I would strongly disagree with that because although they were looking in all of the wrong places for answers to their questions in life, they were at least asking these questions and seeking the answers to these questions. The frustration related to our very, very materialistic, entertainment-driven, self-dominated culture that we think is so vastly superior uh, to uh, others and that the Athenian culture was inferior to ours in the very least, but they were inferior. What we're seeing here in Acts chapter 17 is superior to uh, everything about our culture in at least one regard, and that they gave consideration to not only asking the questions of life that ought to be asked by every person, but then seeking out the answer when our culture gives virtually no consideration to the great questions in life. You can hardly engage a person in a conversation related to these kind of questions. Concerning sports, absolutely. Concerning the movies, absolutely. Concerning the news or the weather, absolutely. But these things, mm-mm. Harder and harder to find. And our culture, by and large, doesn't even ask them anymore, Let's much less take any time grappling with them, attempting to find the answer to them. And I'm afraid that if Paul were to speak to our culture, he wouldn't even be able to begin the discussion where he did with the Athenians. He would have to start even further back for all of our pride and all of our arrogance. Now, This affirmation on Paul's part toward them wasn't spoken out of insincerity or just as a means to manipulate them. We must never affirm people uh, out of uh, or commend uh, people we're speaking to insincerely or as a means of manipulating them or opening them up to what it is I'm going to say. It has to be sincere, simply being like Jesus. When Jesus spoke and wrote those seven letters to the seven churches in the Revelation, in each of those letters, he wasn't always successful because he wasn't able to do so, but in each of those letters, he began them with a commendation before he got to the correction, and it is to be like Christ in engaging with uh, people. And when we do that, people notice it, and they appreciate it, and I think it goes a very, very long way in helping people to trust us and to see that we really do uh, care for them and, uh, and uh, that we see them more than just uh, uh, the collection of their problems. We see that they're multifaceted. We see that they're not doing everything wrong, but they're doing certain things right. And it builds uh, something uh, very, very good into the relationship and the conversation The Apostle Paul knew, and perhaps we've all (laughs) learned this by uh, hard discovery, but he knew here that you very rarely uh, are effective in reaching anyone when you poke them in the eye verbally with your first sentence. And so, uh, he doesn't uh, do that. Uh, If there's a point that you can agree upon, that's the place to begin, and then to move forward in that. Now, finally, under this heading And I know that I'm keeping you a little bit long here, but I think it's worth regrouping to give consideration to. I think it's important for us to recognize that when we talk to somebody about their religion, their view of God, their philosophy related to life, that we're talking to them about the single most important thing in their life. And even if they're misguided as yet, concerning these things. We do need to be sensitive to how deeply we are reaching into people's lives and even shaking the foundation of their lives, even the foundation for their coping mechanisms or their sanity, when we use the Word of God to then expose the frailty or the error of their beliefs. It requires delicacy, it requires tact, it requires love. I never allow a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness to reach the street from my front door after discussing what the Bible has to say about their religions without praying for them and without praying that, number one, the Holy Spirit would use His Word to completely obliterate every lie that they've been indoctrinated uh, into. But also to pray for them personally, with the knowledge that if they were willing to hear what was shared from the Bible to them, that I have just rocked their entire world, and the foundation of their life has now been shaken. It needs to happen. I get that. It's good for them. I get that. But I also need to be sensitive to the fact that it's happening. And I think that the Apostle Paul knew that he was going to, as he proceeded in this sermon, that he was going to rock their whole world in just a moment and to potentially pull the foundation of their life right out from under some of them, and he knew exactly what that felt like because it was just what Stephen did to him when in one sermon earlier in the book of Acts, he completely deconstructed Paul's entire understanding of the Old Testament. He shattered the very thing that Paul had invested his entire life into. And that's why sharing the gospel with someone who is already steeped in another religion or in another philosophy that gets them by in life, but it is not the truth, as opposed to talking to someone who is just a pure secularist, that those kind of conversations and situations do require a special delicacy and a special tact, and we will stop there. Very often our tendency, I think, in looking at Paul's uh, dealings with the Athenians here, our tendency is to tend to go directly to the content of the message because the message is so powerful. And we can tend to overlook the almost equally important model that Paul gives us concerning what is to be our attitude as Christians toward our listeners whoever they might be, and whatever background they might come from. Because if we fail to notice these things that are in the passage equally and we fail to put them into practice, then most people will never stick around long enough to listen to the message that we carry. It is a very, very valuable message piece of instruction that is bound up in this passage that we have considered this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. Father, I've said a lot this morning and from this passage And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, it wouldn't be overwhelming to anyone for consideration. We pray that you would keep these truths alive in our hearts and that you continue to develop them in an even greater measure within our lives, Lord, as we look to influence the culture and, more importantly, the individual lives that make up the culture with this incredibly, indescribably invaluable gospel. Lord, we don't want to mar your invitation or your truth by failing to present it in a way that looks like you. And we ask, Lord, as a church body, we ask individually, and I certainly ask concerning myself, that you would continue to take us deeper into the beauty of all that we see in the Apostle Paul here, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.